name is William Del Pilar. Most of you know me as a pioneer in the fantasy sports industry, and you probably found this through our sportsgrumblies.com website. Well, let me tell you, this is fired up. Now, I'm also a political junkie, and in this episode, I'm really going to enjoy it because I've got with us Karen Roseberry. She is an activist out of California. She's a California native with a bachelor's and master's degree in political science. She spent years working in education, politics, and project management. She's managed state assembly and congressional campaigns and worked in varying capacities in state, Senate, and gubernatorial races. She was also a 2016 candidate for California's U.S. Senate. Her focus and passion is grassroots cultivation, training, and development, as well as putting me in my place more often than, than, than I like. <laughs> but let's welcome Ms. Roseberry. Karen, thanks for coming on again. This is your second appearance. And tonight we are going to talk California politics, the primary specifically, so I hope you are prepared. It is my second appearance. Thank you so much for having me back, William. It's great to be here. I do appreciate it. Uh, keeping you in your place would be a full-time job, and so it's just a pastime, but uh, I, I look forward to it when we have the occasion, especially on podcasts like this. So thank you very much for having me and looking forward to jumping in. Now let's do a little education. One reason uh, I be, I'm a political junkie that got involved is because I just don't think the word nor knowledge that the average voter needs to have the, the, to make a, a, a good voting decision is always out there. So I hope to enlighten some people. I listen to podcasts like these from others, and it's funny, the little things you learn, the little nuances of life that can change your opinion about somebody. I mean, for example, we're not going to talk about it here tonight, but right now across the country, you're seeing some Republican can, uh, uh, incumbents going down in state legislatures because it's come out that while they're talking about how they support parents, they're being funded by their local teachers union, you know? And, and, and some of these Republicans have actually stopped some of these bills because of the COVID. Remember COVID and the indoctrination? And it's exposed those Republicans because they stopped the bill from, from, from being able to be voted on or been a no vote. So we are in interesting times right now. And I think it's more than fair to say, we don't know who to trust. And just because they have a GOP tag on them doesn't mean they're there for us. So let's get going, Ms. Rosemary. We've been voting forever. When does this all end? When do the voters have to make sure their vote is in? Excellent question. So in California, you're right, uh, we actually have a June 7th primary election. However, ballots have gone out as early as, in some cases, even May 6th. Uh, May 9th uh, is when uh, most of them actually started hitting mailboxes. So, so Californians have been voting for about a month now, though with a fairly abysmal turnout. I think we finally crossed, crossed the double-digit threshold uh, just last night, if I'm not mistaken. So we're at about a 10% voter turnout right now uh, statewide. And so there's a couple of races that, that uh, I'm in Los Angeles County that are a little heated. And so you might see those hitting 11, 12, maybe 13. But there's a bunch of others. LA County is actually pretty apathetic and overall is a little below the state level at about 9% voter turnout. And they have less than a week to, to get their ballots in. They have to be postmarked by June 7th uh, on that Tuesday. So, or they can uh, certainly still go in and, and you vote just in person. You LA County. That, I did. That has actually 
speaking, a, a national race within it. It, it. Los Angeles, what is it? Second largest city in the country or something like that? Second, third? Uh, second, I think. But my point being is second, I think you're right. very heated debate for or, or race for mayor. And, and, and so to see this apathy is a little, I don't say concerning because it's not concerning, but, but I guess since maybe it's mostly Democrats battling against Democrats, we see that apathy versus two different parties. Right. Well, the mayor's race is very interesting indeed, because that's just L.A. City. Um, so L.A. City is is a, the largest city, obviously, in Los Angeles County. Uh, but it is interesting to see how much money that uh, Caruso has dumped into this race. There's a lot of talk that he's really trying to push it to 50 percent plus one. Uh, I think one of the questions that uh, we, we may uh, discuss over the course of the, of the evening is the jungle primary that we have. However, in the case of the, the mayor's race, uh, it's actually considered a nonpartisan race. And so nonpartisan races don't follow the same rules as our jungle primary of California, meaning that if a singular candidate in a nonpartisan race gets 50% plus one in the primary, they automatically win the entire election and don't have to battle it out in the November general. But uh, Karen, so I don't want to dwell on this. It's a local race, and we want to talk about situations that non-Californians can relate to that are similar to their own in their state. Uh, but that said, uh, let's get to it. To the audience, we are going to talk about the jungle primary. Today's Republican Party in California. Get Karen will give us our take with a little bit of a history. It's important for you to know whether your party backs you, the constituent, or backs other. <laughs> uh, other constituencies, so to say. Uh, we're also going to talk about some generalities that are questions that people across the nation are dealing with, as well as concerning the California politically. And we're going to get into some of the races. To be quite frank, most of these races are going to be uh, decided uh, already, such as the Senate race, the, 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 the governor's race. But it's interesting for us to learn who some of the grassroots candidates who are out there trying how is the party reacting to this, considering it's, it, it's pretty much a peewee team going to play the St. Louis Rams or the L.A. Rams in the Super Bowl, you know? Uh, and But we are going to talk about a couple of races where Republicans may have a shot. And Karen, correct me, but since 2006, we haven't won a statewide election, have we? Uh, uh, the Republican Party. For, for a constitutional state candidate, that's correct. Uh, 2006 was the last time that we won a governor's race, and that was Schwarzenegger. Yes. Right, right. And that's when uh, Steve Poisner won for insurance. The only reason I remember Poisner is because he, he was still a Republican then, but he became an independent and actually won office then, too, I believe. You know, so and so we yes. have about two yeah, Poisner actually came. I was going to say, Poisner actually came really close in 2018, but you're right. He actually was running as an in, in, independent in 2018 uh, when he almost uh, came back for, for another win uh, to, to at least put a, uh, if you will, sort of an L in the, the D column, uh, you know, meaning, a, you know, a loss for, you know, the Democrat sweep of all of the constitutional offices. But as of yet, that hasn't happened since uh, 2006. Right, right. So two races that Republicans believe they have a shot, I have no clue, Karen's going to fill us in, is attorney general and controller. So those are two races that most people probably won't be too much aware of, but they should be this 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 primary season. Go ahead. Do you have something you want to say? Right. 
I don't know that Republicans actually think that they have a shot with attorney general. I think what's more interesting about the attorney general's race is that the Republican is just trying to beat out the independent for a shot. Uh, It's still pretty unlikely that that a Republican going head to head against the Democrat in a general election would probably be able to take that. Um, Certainly, there'll be another push about public safety. And uh, what's happening in the attorney general's race is we have Rob Bonta, who was actually appointed. Karen, we will get to all that in good time. Let's get some of the basics out of the way first for the audience. Tell us, uh, uh, and I apologize, it's just we we are going to talk about those in detail, but let's go ahead and talk about first what the jungle primary is and how it affects our system out here. There's a, that's okay. a good thing to tell. We, we, we can discuss whichever question you want first. We, like I say, uh, the, other, the other thing is the controller race, actually, the Republican does actually stand a shot, but I guess we'll, we'll uh, discuss uh, the specific races here in a moment. So what was being discussed, though, about why there is or isn't a possibility for a win uh, by a Republican or non-Republican candidate, if you will, uh, rather than just a Democrat, has to do with the the top two primaries. So in partisan races since 2014 in California, there has been a ballot measure that says the top two candidates, regardless of party, advance to the November general election. This has resulted in Democrat versus Democrat races, more likely uh, and and more commonly. Um, And there have been a few cases where you'll see a Republican versus Republican because it's no longer a partisan primary like in most of the other states in the country that are having their primary races right now, where you're putting forward, if you will, your best Republican candidate against your best Democrat candidate. Oftentimes, it's just the top two. And in California, that that very likely means two Democrats in some races going against each other and rarely two Republicans. Do you think that's hurt the Republican Party out here? (laughs) I think that it has at least, I think, demotivated the, the Republican Party. Um, I think that it has taken away some of their spirit uh, because essentially you you now have to look at just the the question of who can beat the Democrat, whether or not it's the the candidate that the most people are fired up about. Uh, It becomes very much uh, a question of, of in many races, it's the same, but but money versus spirit, if you will, and money versus passion. So you you can oftentimes have a very spirited individual win the primary, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to win the general. And now because of the top two, there's a, a much lesser probability that that spirited individual is actually going to advance because of the need to have the person who can do the best showing in the in the general election. Yeah, I think all that's hogwash. It all boils down to the person. I think we've killed some of our candidates. Not be, That's because that's what they'll claim. But the reality is, it's not an establishment chosen person. And thus, they go with that line. It's, it's quite disgusting because what they're saying is, hey, the people are too stupid. They have to have this kind of person in front of them. There's a reason Obama got elected. There's a reason Trump got elected. There's a reason Bill Clinton was able to overcome adversity and get elected. These are people in a normal situation. They're not the Republican or Democratic Party 
type of candidate they want to get in there. Uh, so, so I kind of view it as everything's an individual, especially in today's day and age with the internet, with social media. I think, I think all these old white guys are, are going to see their downfall because you actually have to have some charisma, and that will generate a whole uh, a foundation for you. That that's just human nature. That's how life works. Yeah, I think generally the, the top two primary has widened the divide between the, the grassroots, uh, the, the activist community, the, the ones who want to get out there and rally and, and that are passionate versus the what you're describing, I think, and, and accurately so as the more establishment candidate that may have better fundraising capabilities and may have more money uh, that's there. And it seems to, to heighten and widen that divide rather than get both groups united around one candidate who can actually motivate and actually fundraise well to have a, a legitimate shot in the general. Yeah, and I think the greatest counter to that moving forward is the internet because you can grow your foundation. You don't need the party for that. There are various ways to be seen as a legitimate candidate versus uh, like that one name I sent you a day or two ago, that super long name, that's a write-in candidate with no money. Uh, 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 the only thing unique about it is that it, it, for the audience, it's about 26 letters in there. It seems like with, with three names and it's a write-in candidate. But anyway, let's keep moving. Never gonna happen. Yeah. The California, oh, I'm sorry, Karen, real quick. One question on the jungle primary for the audience, because this, the jungle primary does not seem to help anybody per se. Who gave us the jungle primary? Well, by and large, it was given to us by, by Charles Munger Jr., who was a, a party delegate um, to the CHEOP and also a, a huge contributor um, to the party. And as a result of, of donating as much as he did to the CHEOP, would oftentimes find himself uh, as the committee chairs of whether it was a bylaws committee or whether it was a resolutions committee, um, sometimes platform um, you know, overlap, but, but very oftentimes uh, the resolutions committee. And the resolutions committee is who actually puts forth the, the ballot measures that Republicans are in theory supporting as a, as a party. Karen's polite and, and I don't speak for Karen. My opinion is simple. Charles Munger Jr. owned the party. What he said, he got. What he wanted, he got. When he said jump, they jumped and all the rest of them rank and file jump. And his, the actions tend, tend to support by claim, but that's my opinion. Now, Karen's Charles Munger Jr. Also, for those who don't know, and this is a great tidbit to know, because Warren Buffett and his partner are two of the richest men in the world. And Charles Munger Jr. is Warren Buffett partner's son. You know, so a very silver spoon, very intelligent individual, rocket scientist, literally. So he was no fool. He knew money talked. And as a side note, the final note before we move on, from my understanding, when I researched him and, and, and it's a, wanted to know who he was, I was told that he actually went to the Democrat Party and they said, get lost, we don't need your money. I kind of find that hard to believe though, you know, because we're talking big money. But then again, this state is controlled by teachers unions or unions in general. And, and they've done very well without the, the help of any individual person. Okay, here. Uh, the Republican Party itself, we kind of touched on it, but in, in a sense, talk to us about the chair, not individually, but what does the position encompass and who does that position work for? Uh, 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 theoretically and in reality, what have we gotten for the last 20, 30 years? And, and I ask that seriously because 
we haven't really won an election uh, since the turn of the century that really mattered in terms of uh, at the national level from California. The Senate, the U.S. Senate has been uh, uh, main, mostly Democrat. The governors uh, since Schwarzenegger, it seems at least 10 years since we've seen any Republican uh, uh, visibility up there. So the, the CAGOP chair right now, I think, is is primarily looking to maintain relevancy for the party in California. I believe that the Republican Party, last time I looked at the registration numbers, has dipped back down to third in registration. And so it, it makes it challenging to put out that, that credible, you know, fight of, you know, be a Republican because you're going to win. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that the Republican Party right now does not think that a statewide race is winnable. Uh, again, and, and I know we'll talk more about it. I mean, they, they just want to make sure that they actually have a Republican on the AG ticket, because if they end up losing that seat or losing that, that office uh, to even have a contender in the general, weakens their credibility further. So again, it, it's it's showing that they are still viable, that they can they can play, and that they they have a a reason for their existence, and that comes down to what they can do and what they can accomplish. And so the, the Republican Party is trying to do two things, and that the chair is leading that effort of raising money and getting Republicans elected, but it's selective on which Republicans will be elected. And right now the selection is based off of congressional races because the push of the party and the hope behind that would be as the Republican party of California to get a Republican speaker of the house. And the most likely candidate for speaker of the house is actually a Californian and it would be Kevin McCarthy. Right. So their their concern is, and I predicted this too, right after the last election, I said things are going to go south with Biden, and if it's going to be a race. They're going to put every dime they have into the, the congressional races to, first of all, keep the 10 seats we do have and potentially flip a few others. We'll talk about some names specifically there shortly. But my point being is they don't really care about any of that down. They may say they do but I don't think they really care. Again, those are my opinions. I have no love for this party, you know, even though it's a party I associate like, with. I think that they've been pretty actually just open and, and actually very forthright in the fact that, that the races that they want to play in for this particular election are congressional races. Right. Um, their, focus, their focus is not on statewide seats um, right, because right, right. they know that they, they don't have the demographics to win. Right, right, right. See, that's not true. As a Latino, I can tell you that's not true. We've made no effort to get the Latino vote in this party. Ron Nearing, in a class I took, said Latinos don't vote, vote uh, Republican. And I just looked at him and I said, you and you just told me how useless you are. You know, and, and, and I say Ron Nearing specifically because uh, uh, he's just one of many. Again, uh, 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 I get harsh on this because we're losing so badly and we're doing minimal. We're tweaking instead of changing, you know, and, and, and we, we don't, it's a long story, long soap opera story, but but pretty much the conservative grassroots voice has no relevancy in the party. Uh, 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 please just say that for an assumption for the conversation. The, what does the grassroots have to do to regain their voice? Or do you think they do have a voice in the party? Well, I, I think that 
you raise a really interesting point about a debate that that is there that's not talked about. It's kind of the elephant in the room, and it, and it really does come down to voter registration, uh, because the reality is is that the most likely and the most common and the, the most driving fact for anyone's vote really is party identification still. So there's a couple of things that could be done about that, about the party identification, either strip it off the ballot so people don't look at the D or the R after the name and would vote accordingly, or we need to change those numbers and get people voting for the party that they're registered and, and identifying with. When you have a 26% registration of no party preference voters, that explains a pretty significant piece of why that voter turnout is 10%, because there's not a candidate for those 26% that, that are out there. They, they haven't been sought out. They haven't been wooed. They haven't been educated. They, they're like, I don't want a Democrat, I don't want a Republican, and I don't know who to vote for, so I'm not gonna vote. And so when 26% of the electorate doesn't vote, yeah, you end up with a with a ten percent, you know, voter turnout that that's right, there. Right, right. And and again, I'm speaking in generalizations. There certainly are no party preference uh, candidates, or uh, excuse me, there are no party preference voters who are voting, but it's low on the the percentages. Right, right. The only pushback I, I, I'll give is Democrats are voting. They've won every race, haven't they? So it doesn't matter about the apathy. They're getting enough of their voters out there to win. And at the end of the day, that's what frustrates me, frustrates me with the Republican Party is they talk a lot of a lot of intellectual layers in there. And my question is simple. When's the last time you guys won a major race? And that's with the size. Oh, but we're out of debt. Thank you, Charles Munger. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little redistricting. Let's leave the, the Republican Party before my face turns red and blows up. Redistricting, Ms. Roseberry. Uh, if you can uh, talk about redistricting in essence, what it is, and what's the major concern by both parties that redistricting does? Sure. So redistricting recuts the lines for the districts. And what a district is, is who is represented by a representative. There are three main distinctions, though there are uh, some smaller ones. And, and quite honestly, every particular seat is redistricted. There are local county redistricting commissions. There there were uh, ones for the, the Board of Equalization, which was actually part of the, you know, 14 person commission that actually cut the lines and the three main cuts that take place are for the congressional seats, the state Senate seats and the state assembly seats. There are Pardon me, I'm going to go into an eighth grade teacher mode for one second. There are 80 assembly seats, there are 40 state Senate seats, and in California, there are 52 congressional seats. That's down from 53 um, House seats that we had previously because the redistricting is determined by the population of each particular potential district that's there. So you have a population drop in California, that means we lose a representative in the House of Representatives because now another state picks up that representative because their population grew. The right. state assembly and the state senate seats, they don't change their numbers because that's the California state constitution. Right, so in essence, it, it just kind of uh, realigns everything. And for the audience, my personal belief is that's that's one of the big reasons uh, Democrats wanted to count illegals out here is because uh, we wouldn't have lost a congressional seat. And, and wow, it, just, just thinking of that. Okay, so in essence, though, 
by this realignment, I'm going to assume that we're going to see, or there are situations, and, and we're not going to talk about state or state senate races tonight. Uh, uh, we're going to talk congressional level, but it happens at every level, local to national, where re, uh, realignment pits two of the same party together. Uh, how many of yeah, those it, it does, it, we have that problem this season? This year. Right. It, it does happen much more at the state level. And I know that we just want to keep that a high level overview. But I mean, th there are a couple of key state assembly seats where you're going to see uh, an R&R um, that's causing some friction. Um, you see um, a number of individuals retiring because they don't want to have an inner party fight. So they'll let kind of the second, you know, tier sort of come up the ranks and the first one sometimes will come out or sometimes the second tier is like no do you I'm really not think do that's that. it or do you think a deal is made i mean some of them are older no, they're like I'm, yeah my I'm time's sure gone there's, i think it's more like this the party leaders go to the two candidates whoever whichever candidate embodies what they want more is the one they're going to push and they're going to make a deal to get the other one out the problem arises when the second person doesn't want to get out and then it's right. even worse when they're not necessarily popular, but they're 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 polling equally or they're very similar. Then it then it becomes the battle royale. And my district at the state level has one of those battle royales that's going to happen. And uh, I've already picked my side, you know. So so we'll we'll talk about the, those races after the primary, and we will focus heavily on those. But so in essence, people redistricting has happened. When you hear the term gerrymandering look it up but that's the soap opera drama of politics and both sides do do that karen i got some general questions for you is the fact that larger races or the more visible races aren't competitive this cycle is that creating a lot of voter apathy and low turnout the reason i ask is there are so many kitchen table politics and people kitchen table politics is a term used when the issues are the ones that are directly affecting you like high gas prices, uh, high grocery uh, prices, you know, so those type of things. Public Karen, there's safety, so many, yes. There's so many of those issues. I would have thought that would have garnered greater turnout, but but you're telling me it's not. So, so what's causing the lower apathy outside of the traditional norms? Well, I think that perhaps the very divisive partisan environment um, is certainly causing that. And, and generally speaking, I think that the average Joe citizen, sure, is going to sit around their you know kitchen table and they're going to say, my gas prices are too high. I'm paying way too much, you know, in you know my grocery bill, my taxes, you know, all of that because of the, the just the radical inflation that that's taking place. But they're going to say, well, but what can I actually do about this? Who who's really going to fix inflation? Who actually understands what inflation is? You know, they they basically see both parties as contributing to this, and and no one really offering good solutions for that. I, I do think that the mayor's race that we talked about a little bit um, is going to be interesting uh, in in Los Angeles, in the city of Los Angeles, because you know certainly you know public safety and homelessness um, have been um, probably two of the the biggest issues, and, and I do think that that's driving some turn out um, for that. But again, it's it's a lot of talk. It's a lot of just the same thing that voters have heard for a decade. Vote for me, I'm going to fix this, but it hasn't ever been fixed. And at some point, it's like, is anybody really going to fix it? And does it really matter who I vote for? You know, does it matter who I vote for? Because 
some people think, you know, it's already rigged, it's already counted, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, my vote just, you know, the, the system, the machinery is going to push forth whoever is there. And then I think the other part, if, if they actually think that they could vote, is that they don't have a candidate that is compelling enough for them to solve those problems and be like, yeah, I'm going to go out and, and vote for this person because they're actually going to fix it. I agree with all those, but I also think the biggest reason out of it all was not mentioned. That's just laziness. As Americans, we don't understand how good we have it. So we take a lot of this type of stuff for granted. I mean, with all due respect, uh, somebody can tell you all about Kim Kardashian's backside, but they can't tell you what that local politician or that con congressional rep is doing that's going to impact you more than she ever would. And, and I do mean they that. can't name their current congressman. So correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, and that's depressing to me because coming from a country like Panama, after all that country went through, see my relatives suffer and all that. I'm like, y'all just don't get it. But that's a personal belief. Okay. Karen, something we saw, we saw it in the last mayor's race, actually, too. Uh, 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 my favorite Democrat, I forget the Latino's name, he's uh, very popular. But in essence, you're seeing opposing parties support, cross-party support by doing mailers for, so for example, let me say it this way, it's much easier to understand. A, a, a leading Democrat uh, who knows he's going to be one or two in that race is supporting, say, the fourth or fifth rated uh, Republican to try to get them to win a number two spot so they can face them. Is that, is that just isolated? But it seems to me we are seeing more and more of that. In fact, from what I understand, one of our party's uh, congressional candidates, uh, I'm sorry, the Democrat con congressional candidate, Mike Levine, is sending out mailers to GOP voters talking about Christopher Rodriguez. He's a local up and comer, but still a no name, really has no chance at this level. He's running to lose, but is hoping to gain name recognition out of this. But Mike Levin is sending out mailers supporting him and how strong he is for pro-life and knocking the actual legitimate candidate, who I think Levin's gonna beat anyway, but the legitimate candidate being Brian Mario. Uh, so is that becoming part of the norm? Or are these still isolated cases? Oh, and the attorney general's race, I understand that may be happening in that too. It's definitely happening in, happening in the attorney general race. Uh, Rob Bonta would love to see Eric Early advance and actually has basically an IE pack that's actually pushing um, his candidacy so that he doesn't have to face Nathan Hodgman or Anne-Marie Schubert. No, I know we'll get more into that race, but just a little, a little glimmer, you know, I'll, I'll uh, you know. The the a teaser, it. we call it. Exactly, exactly. Yes, the teaser for that. Um, no, I think, I think it's very, very common. I mean, we're also seeing, and I, we talked a little bit about this in, in our last episode, but just the, the massive misdirection and deflection um, that's taking place by the Democrats, especially, you know, and abortion's a hot topic issue, not because abortion's going to change in California, but because it's throwing red meat at their base to fire them up. And, and sure, if, you know, they can basically, you know, push another candidate that will fail more epically against them in the November general election, they're going to do exactly that because they know that the turnout in November is going to be higher than in June. And so if, if they just keep beating this same drum that is a non-issue for what really is there, 
they don't have to talk about the issues that voters really do care about and that could lose them votes because most of the time these are the incumbents that are doing that they've been failing at their jobs for a number of years in office and they don't want to talk about those failures and so rather than talk about the things that they're failing at they're going to say look over here if you you know elect this person all of this is going to happen and it's like well if we elect you we've already seen what's happening and it's miserable and you're doing a terrible job so why should we re-elect you is really the question voters should be asking rather than why do I not want to elect this guy over here? That's just not how people think, sadly, and they know that. They know yep. that. And, and for the record, I, I, I don't know if I find it offensive or brilliant uh, because there are no rules in war and this is political war. And I don't say that as in I'm supporting what he's doing. I'm just saying you got to do what you got to do to win as long as you don't cross the line. And as seedy as that is, he's not crossing the line, in my opinion. But I guess you could say it's unethical. It's not honorable is what what, what most dumb men would say, because in, in battle, there is no honor. It's about winning and seeing your family and your loved ones the next day. But that said, let's get into some races now. And honestly, uh, I'm more interested in hearing about the, the individuals in these races that, that our side needs to know who they are, because as we've said, the likelihood of, of, of winning in this environment. And people, we are in the best environment to make a comeback. And the fact that we don't even see that here in California tell, should tell you how deeply blue this state is. I'm not talking numbers. I'm talking about what Karen said about how people look at, well, why should I vote or this or that? When there is no hope, it doesn't matter if it's 50-50 because once you have no hope, you're defeated and the other side will win. And that's what the Republican Party is right now. But we do have some great rising stars and some interesting characters. So first, the United States Senate race for California. There are, this is a primary people, 24 candidates. And as of my research, uh, uh, I found six Democrats and eight Republicans. And the rest are just people who want to see their name on the ballot, pretty much. The incumbent is Alex Padilla, a Democrat. Karen, uh, before I go on, though, was he elected or appointed? He was appointed. Um, he was appointed to the seat because his predecessor, Kamala Harris, uh, became the vice president. So her U.S. Senate seat uh, was vacated um, as a result. And Newsom, uh, Newsom had several appointments. In fact, there's actually uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on in San Francisco right now. One of the things that's actually um, happening in San Francisco is that they're getting a little tired of the appointment process. And so they're actually trying to put some measures in place that limit the extent of the term uh, that an appointed individual, uh, you know, can can remain in office. So essentially, if, if somebody wants to run for office, they can't be appointed to the office. You know what, I just find that all is hogwash. My point being is, these are outliers. It's, it's not like every cycle, there's 10 people who are getting appointed. You know, there's some positions that are permanent appointees, meaning when the person leaves, uh, uh, but those are 10, those tend to be non-elected office. For elected office, you got to run eventually. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I can see if the person dies or leaves office at the start, but the cost of these elections, you know, I say that as if I care because I do care. But the irony is we waste so much money everywhere. This really does become dropped, dropped in the water. You know, OK, so Padilla is a given. Right. 
Right. I, I guess I would just, I would, I, I'm going to banter with you a little on that one, just because the power of the incumbency is so strong that when you set up people as an incumbent in office, it gives them a springboard and a platform off of which to go. It, it, it basically gives them a head start in their race that other candidates don't get. It does, they're never actually truly comes that place of a open seat as easily as we would have seen had there not been this kind of perpetual appointment process that was going on. Again, Bonta is another one that was actually appointed. Bonta wouldn't be attorney general if Newsom hadn't actually appointed him. So he gets the power of the incumbency for that. And that makes it more challenging for his opponents um, to, to come up against him. You know, but I also get the point. Technically, I agree with you, but the reality of the matter is, uh, uh, from from when I got I got involved in 2015, but I've been a political drinking my whole life. And what I just always saw is that you're right, which means the odds are harder. But we don't do everything we can on our side to get the name out. And at the end of the day, it's still the candidate's job to get name recognition. The truth of the matter is, life's not fair. And there's a reason they call it the power of the incumbency. It's not really the power of the incumbency. It's once elected, the name recognition is there, but then the party itself does everything to back that. And 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 because it's incumbent and those extra add-ons. But and the reason I bring this up is it will never happen. But let's say we could remove the party and that incumbent had to run. It would literally be on equal footing outside of the name recognition of him serving however long, you know. But once you get the machine on your side, then everything you said becomes a major factor. I just think I'm old school, Karen. I'm an entrepreneur. Nobody helped me. And I helped start a new industry. And I came out on top. My little company out of my garage, then a small office. Actually, it's a pretty big office in Escondido. Uh we, we were beating out corporations for contracts. We were providing content to them. So, so I guess my mind works differently where I view it as a challenge. And I guess when I look at candidates, I'm like, if you're not like me with that mentality, then get the bleep out. You know, and honestly, I, that's how I view most politicians. It's that machine behind them. You know, I mean, think about it. I, I'm digressing here, but I just want to make this, this point up. There's a lot of boring people where I'm sure you turn on the TV and you see this 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 old 80 year old. He's mumbling there, and the guy's winning by 80 percent because he's the incumbent. I don't know if he's if it's as much he's an incumbent as the power of that machine and the name recognition. Because the candidate itself would lose votes. Well, the machine is actually really interesting too, because the counter to that is the endorsement process that the opposing candidates to the incumbent would have. And that brings us to a very interesting point of what's going on with that US Senate seat that you were talking about. Correct. So Correct. there's there's pretty much two leading Republicans with a third that you know has run before and has a little bit of name ID, but but hasn't really been able to garner um, significant traction in finances. So you have Mark Muser, who actually ran for Secretary of State in 2018. Um, and so he's actually been on a statewide ballot and has some name ID and has been able to ride that wave a little bit. You have Cordy Williams, who's a little more conservative, not all, I mean, they're both pretty conservative, but, but Cordy Williams has at least been, been championed by a few more conservative groups and kind of have rallied around him as the slightly more conservative candidate. Then you have James Bradley, who actually ran for U.S. Senate before. And like I say, just close. never, I'm sorry? He came close last time. Wasn't he like inching up there for a primary? I mean, he, he lost, but there was like a few days of voting because they were counting the votes. 
and he was competitive for a couple of days, I remember. Okay, I don't remember it that way, but I, I'd have to look. But uh, I, I mean, you know, again, and, and, and I, I like Bradley, but uh, in wow. terms of <laughs> who actually has money and, and what's going to actually happen and, and, and come down from this, most likely you're going to see Muser advance. Uh, he does have the CAGOP endorsement, which means that his name will go on their mailers as they go out and, you know, hit the mailboxes. So if nothing else, if people, you know, look at the, the endorsed candidate list, you know, for CAGOP, you know, as Republicans voting in the primary, usually that will carry, you know, some weight. The, the, the problem is with this race and with all of the other statewide races in California, being the number two in, in the primary isn't going to actually let you really make any inroads into the, the, the general, uh, because we're gonna see a very partisan split um, come the, the, the general election, which is what we've consistently seen. And it'll probably be along that 60-40 split line. You know, I was at an event once and I asked a question, I won't say who the individual was, but he was an elected uh, congressional representative. And I said, what's it going to take to uh, get the, to regain the governorship or, 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 or one of the Senate seats? He says, a good looking Latino. <laughs> His whole point was saying that, 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 and this was, this guy was angry, you know, and he said it half joking and I talked to him afterwards and he said, look, that's a national race. He goes, you've got to go into the urban areas. You've got to go into the, the he didn't say barrios. He was being politically correct. But he's like, you got to go into the neighborhoods. He goes, and we don't have anybody who's doing that. He goes, I have my own district. He goes, it's much different, a small district versus the whole state. And 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 yes. for, for the record, Mark Muser is one of the most likable guys you will ever meet. And he was one of the, not one of the first people, but when I started getting involved in 2015, I immediately met him. He was very involved. He's beloved by a lot of the grassroots and he appears to be accepted by the establishment. So he's a great candidate. I just question the whole GOP machine in California and its relevancy. And that's what I think dooms him. Again, going back to that machine, but he's a very likable guy. And for, and for individuals who don't know, everybody knows Harmeet Dillon. Uh, uh, is it Dillon? Harmeet Dillon. You know, she's on Fox, on Tucker a lot. He works for her law firm. So he's been involved in a lot of these battles against uh, the, the, the these draconian laws we're seeing, and they've won. So so much uh, success and love the Muser. But if Bradley or Williams can come out of this, you know, more power to it. It shows that maybe we are going in some way. But, but I agree with you. Uh, so actually, you're saying Muser is likely to take the number two spot then? There's no other Democrat that, that could jump in there? I would, I would, I would say that he's pretty likely to take that just because he is the endorsed Republican candidate. He does have, you know, pretty good name ID over the, over Bradley and over uh, uh, Williams. Williams' name ID, I think, is is pretty minimal because uh, we haven't seen him on a ballot before. Bradley, we have seen, uh, but I, I, in terms of the, the fundraising capabilities, I think Muser um, has probably won that out. And like I say, just being on those Republican mailers, I think, uh, will be um, influential for him uh, as well. Right, so, right, right. And uh, yeah, uh, in, in regards to Harvey Dillon, uh, Dillon, she's actually the uh, uh, spokesperson for the C. She's the, the National Committee spokesperson for the CAGOP. Right, but she was on Tucker's show as uh, representing herself in the law firm. Yeah. Hey, that's, it's, hey, that's how life works. There's a lot of people, well, she should be doing it. Look, she's trying to do it all and succeeding in various ways. You know, uh, we all have to earn a living. All right, so that's the U.S. Senate race.
we're going to talk about the, the the congressional races. I don't want to get too detailed into the names as much as the scenarios that are similar, but there are we're, there's no one doubts that the likelihood of a red wave uh, in in 49 states, maybe not California, but a red wave in, in, across the nation is going to happen. But there are vulnerable Democrats per uh, various polling agencies. Uh, we have David Valadao. He's in a district, and I'm assuming, Karen, and maybe you can, maybe you have some insight that I'm assuming some of these uh, uh, on both parties, some of the reasons that they're vulnerable is because of redistricting. But we have David Valadao. Yes. He's now his district. Valadao. Valadao. His district is Democrat mm -hmm. plus six. We have Mike Garcia, who made national news because he won the special election. His district is Democrat plus four, and he only won by like 300 votes last time out, I believe. You're 333. And now it's a Democrat plus four. So that's a battle. Uh, the other one that is of concern would be Michelle Steele, uh, uh, who had, whose family is, is CAGOP uh, 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 endorsed. They're involved in the party. And that's Michelle Steele. She's a Democrat in a district that's Democrat plus three. There's Kim Young and Kim Calvert, but their districts are still leaning Republican. But what can you tell me? Uh, in terms of the strategy, what are they facing as a whole, and what do they have to do uh, 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 in terms of the major points to get reelected and overcome the fact that they are now in blue districts? Okay, well, um, so Valadeo is an interesting one, uh, you know, in the fact that he actually came back to retake that seat. So he was there, he lost it, he retook it, and um, he actually uh, may even face um, somewhat of a challenging primary because some people haven't been overly thrilled uh, with the, the job that he's done. But uh, he is the uh, he is the incumbent, and so he will get you know as much support as possible. And presuming that he does advance um, into the November general, which is almost a certainty. Um, I think everyone will rally around him because he is certainly um, the preferred candidate over uh, Rudy Salas. And, and again, I think that Republicans really do want to retake the House. And so I think that they're going to be willing to put aside um, petty grievances in the, the ultimate goal and focus of we don't want Biden to be able to not have a, a, an appropriate check on him. We want to be able to check him as best as possible. And so even if we don't love, you know, the, the Republican candidate that might advance into the general, uh, more often than not, generally speaking, they, they will actually serve as that check on a pretty out of control Biden administration, especially considering the inflation and Ukraine and just everything right now that, that that's happening. Republicans want that house back. Right, right. So, you are absolutely correct. Everything you said is true with one added caveat, and that is human nature and power corrupts. And anybody who's been in Congress for more than a few terms, of uh, more than two terms, power is corrupting them. And I, I'm not, those are, I say that about people who I like, you know, like Ted Cruz and them. Ted Cruz has become a calculated politician the last uh, uh, past four years, you know? So, so the reason I say that is because you're right. We do need to take the house. So nothing else should really matter in, in many ways, but to bring the human nature, Kevin McCarthy wants to be house speaker that, that he wants to be the kingmaker for the Republicans. And that's power. Uh, I mean, he, if he becomes house speaker, he becomes the number three most powerful person in Congress in terms of line of secession. So he could hate any one of those candidates. He doesn't care. He's going to funnel the money oh. as he should. 
but but let's not let's not yeah. leave out the the caveat. Yeah, but McCarthy's not going to be the the issue to block any of that. He doesn't care what Republican is gets in, so long as the Republican beats the Democrat. Absolutely, exactly. And, and in this in this sense, we're aligned. You know, because I agree. I'm like, I'll deal with the fact I don't like you and some of your votes later, but you're all we got. And I'm in no power to change that. And I'm not getting involved. So it's not like I can uh, uh, complain about it heavily. Uh, uh, and I do mean that. If you really want to make change, get off your butt and stop watching King Kardashian, but and go out there and do something. You know, so let's go to the Democrats. Uh, Okay. Uh, well, I was just gonna uh, real quick. I'll just uh, touch on those other two that that, that are there that we, uh, okay. you mentioned. But the Garcia race is, is really interesting because you're right on how close it was. Um, Garcia's district was actually always a leaning Democrat, um, and now it has a little bit more of that lean. But th there's a lot of debate over his redistricting and and how much harm or how much uh, hurt uh, will be caused by that. He lost Simi Valley, which actually is pretty conservative, but he picked up a, a northern section of Los Angeles County and he lost a little of the southern section that was dipping into San Fernando. He still has a little bit of Silmar, if, if I'm not mistaken, though I think even some of that was actually cut out. So he, he has a rough district for sure. Um, and, and I think that there's definitely been some severe purpling of the Santa Clarita and the Antelope Valley areas that are there. But I, I think that Garcia may, may come through this okay, even though, like I say, it was really close for him before. I think he's really been, you know, working um, as the, uh, the congressman of the, the district and, and probably hasn't made any serious major gaffes. Like I say, certainly Christy Smith, uh, you know, will gun for him uh, every chance that, that she gets. But that was his opponent last time, right? Uh, Christy Smith was the, the opponent last time as well. Yes. And then, statistically uh, speaking, Karen, history shows that second time challengers who've lost the previous cycle to that incumbent tend to get yep. statistically destroyed the second go around. And I believe nothing's changed to sit there and look at his opponent, uh, Smith, there as, as well, I'm going to change my voting. I want her back in. Come, with all the kitchen politics, with Biden just just coming across as a buffoon, I think I think uh, Garcia will weather this. And personally speaking, I view five to seven percentage points either way. That's still within your your strategy, your tactics. You don't have to change. Especially you got to go out there a little bit yeah. harder and push, but you don't really have to change. Once you get to the plus ten, that's when you go. Okay, how do I get into the heart and meat of this to regain? And again, it boils once, down to once you're in a plus. Once you're in a plus 10, you're almost in what would be generally considered an unwinnable district, unless there are some serious other, you know, variables and factors um, to take into consideration. Um, that That's going to be a deficit that's almost impossible to, to overcome. And, and I mean, it doesn't mean that people shouldn't fight and, and try to kind of retake that so that they don't go from plus, you know, 10 to plus 15s, you know, that, that are there. But that there is also just the reality of the situation and, and how much people will actually uh, invest in those particular seats. You know, you hit something on the head when, when, when in our city council race, well, California in general, when we started losing, we would retreat and circle around our districts, our areas that we had complete control and we would cede those battles to Democrats. And so, so what you said is what we should do, but we don't, we just give away. So it goes, instead of going from 10 down to seven or something, because we fought back hard, knowing we lose, it goes to 15. And that's kind of how we lost the state. I hate to say, you know, mm -hmm. so, so, mm -hmm. and, and that's one yeah. thing as a former liberal, I have always admired the fighter. People look at Trump, Obama, the intellectuals, and they have no clue why these people win. 
if they win because they get us in the heart because they're fighters. It's simple. Human nature has always gravitated to that champion. And Democrats are good uh, of at least portraying they have that. All righty. Uh, uh, okay, talking about Mike Garcia. Briefly, Michelle Steele, plus three. Do you, uh, I assume she's going to have the not only the full force of the machine as it is, but if there's anything extra they can pull out of their pockets, they're going to do it. Because uh, uh, Michelle Steele is a congressional representative. We'll briefly tell us about her husband so people know this is a power couple. Well, yes, she's married to Sean Steele, who's actually the... CAGOP National Committee spokesman. So we talked about Harmeet Dillon before as the uh, National Committee spokeswoman. Sean Steele is the National Committee spokesman for CAGOP. So, so, so do you see her? Uh, I, I guess my point is uh, what I just said. I don't foresee her losing unless there's some serious skeletons or she sticks yeah. her in her mouth. Her redistricted seat, actually, but both her and Young Kim's redistricted uh, seats actually were not horribly unfavorable to them. Um, like I say, I mean, th th they still have pretty good um, chances um, for, for keeping their seats. Um, there's going to be a lot of fight to make sure that they keep them. Uh, we absolutely want to keep the gains um, that were taken in the, in the last uh, congressional election. They are pretty much necessary for keeping the house up. You know, I think, uh, you know, we've talked about whether or not the road to the house goes through California, that that's certainly a CAGOP talking line. Uh, and, and certainly why the focus um, by the party is on the congressional seats. Is it possible to take the House without California? Well, to a degree, but keeping the seats that we already have, I think, is, is going to be a pretty important piece in that puzzle. I think it would be much more challenging to, to take the House if California loses any seats um, that we, we've already gained. Right, right. My whole issue with that is is. It's not that they're lying, they're marketing, <laughs> you know, they're branding because, okay, so if we don't get the 10 seats, we could lose a house. Okay. If we don't get the 10 seats out of Texas, we could lose a house. If we don't get the, the five seats out of North Carolina, we could lose a house. So, so anybody can make a campaign or marketing slogan. I was very good at that. And that's what they're yes. doing here. It, yeah. It's entirely true. Although just because of the number of seats alone that are in California, there are like, you know, no other state, you know, save, you know, Texas and New York, uh, you know, really have the, the number of, you know, congressional seats in play. And, you know, in terms of, of how much sway a single state has in contributing to um, the House of Representatives. So, you know, there, there's a, a component of that that's true. But I mean, when we talk about 10 seats for Republicans, I mean, goodness gracious, there's at least I can think of right off the top, 10 states that don't have 10 representatives oh, right, you know, that right, are there. Right, so right, right. The sheer number. But, but right, I, I right. just find it as a, as a flaw, flaw, flaw argument or statement only because we've lost this state and we're like trying to cling on to it and, and keep our relevancy, which we no longer have. Okay, Josh Harder. These are some Democrats. Uh, 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 no, no, Josh Harder, he's a Republican or Democrat? No, Harder is a Democrat. You are hey, correct what I thought. Okay, on, okay. on identity. So for some reason, I, I'm going to ignore my notes here because they seem wrong. But no, Josh I know I know what you have on that actually. Um, yeah. So so the interesting thing about the the, the harder race um, is that he actually the the seat does have some leaning uh, to a Republican. So I was actually uh, checking it on like the, the, I think the Cook's political report, and I couldn't remember if it was likely or leaning. Um, it, it's still likely or leaning Democrat, but 
I think it may have actually kicked over from likely to lean That's what Democrat, meaning that there is a glimmer of hope for a Republican um, to, to take that seat. And the reason why, there's a couple of reasons. So it's it's lo- the seat's located in the Central Valley. Um, and Harder hasn't well, hold been- Hold on, Central Valley is uh, uh, in the middle of California, uh, uh, just for the audience. Sure, I think most people, the Central Valley, yeah, the Central well, we Section. We have El Centro also, and some people have confused that. Okay. Valley. So, yeah. yeah, so Central Valley is going to be your Modesto area, you know, kind of Visalia, Fresno. It goes right up the center of California. It's a breadbasket of California. Uh, you know, it st- starts at Bakersfield and goes up to like Merced. So at the agriculture, uh, 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 what's the term? The agriculture heart of, of California and part of the nation. Yeah. Right. Right. No, okay. So, so very much, very much heartland. Yes, very much. You know, a lot of blue collar workers um, that that are there as well. But you know, like I say, very. It, it does have a rural contingency um, that's there, uh, and even the cities um, that are there, you know, still are. You know, basically not urban mega centers by any stretch of the imagination. It, like say your Modestos, your Turlocks, you know. Uh, uh, with the redistricting that took place, I'd actually have to check the map because I believe he actually lost. He did. He, 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 actually, no, I think he still has a San Joaquin or at least some of uh, the San Joaquin area. Um, but that, that San Joaquin, or I'm sorry, uh, but. Um, no, I'm yeah, sorry, the, Karen. I thought you were talking the Democrat plus or minus number because he, he did went down and that's why I think they started to look at it as a potentially vulnerable. I think he was higher than a plus five. Uh, 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 before, but regardless, I don't want to spend too much time on harder as much as the whole situation here. You have you have four Democrats at the Republican Party or the Cook Political Report or some agency has sat there and said will be will be or can be a competitive race. But I got to be honest, Katie Porter, she's in a Democrat plus three district, but she's got a massive war chest. You know the machine behind her too. Mike Levin himself. Don't quote me, but I mean, I think he's like mega rich, a billionaire or something like that. But he, I mean, he he went in and took over ICE's old district that was turning from purple to blue. It's plus three. The the major candidate there, that's Republican Brian Marriott, has kind of stepped over his own feet at times, tripping. So uh, then you have Julia Brownlee with a plus 13. I, in my notes, I actually highlighted that because I'm like, what? You know, how's this race even uh, being seen as leaning? I think it happened with you, what you said. It went from one Democratic, like solid given win to maybe not quite so solid. But do you see any of those right. Democrats uh, 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 eating it? I think Katie Porter's a little weaker than you think that she is. I mean, yes, she does have a war chest, but she's also made some missteps and gaffes. And, and I think she has opened herself up for some some hits. I mean, it really depends on, on who goes after her and, and how they do so. She does have major party backing in the machinery that that is supporting her, and they want to keep that seat without a doubt. But I mean, she saw she was even kind of seen as a little vulnerable, you know, in her last election. I mean, it was not, you know, uh, she won, but I mean, there was at least. Let me put it this way. Her Republican opponent did better than was anticipated against her in the last election. And so now that the seat is even a little more competitive, there is still some more potential to chip uh, away at her. And, and you know, it, it, it's not it's not a given that she keeps her seat. And that's very fair to say, because uh, this will be her toughest battle, considering where the economy's at, uh, the incumbency of the, the, the current party in power traditionally losing. Correct. So, so I guess I can see that you sold me on that. My uh, and the reason you sold me on that is as you're talking, I'm thinking, 
I play their game. I would go campaign as a Latino. I don't know who their opponent is, but go into the barrios, whether they're legal or not, you know, teach them how that ballot process, send our people there. Because here's the thing about first generation Latinos and all these illegals coming over. I'm not saying that, that, that I want them to vote, but the Democrats have set a system in place. We need to take advantage of it while we can, and then we can change it to correct it once we're back in power. But most first generations are extremely, extremely, they're uber, whatever adjective you want to use, pro-life. And that is front and center uh, right now. And uh, believe it or not, Karen, I know this firsthand too, a lot of first generation Latinos here, a lot of them kind of assume their current representative here is pro-life too. Because the Democrats aren't and dumb. They're, they're not going to yeah. sit there and say, they don't really go to these people. They're acolytes. They're, they're, the people working for them are the ones there and, and telling them these myths. So I, I guess as you were saying that, that's what I was thinking. So any of these plus threes and plus fives, this cycle are beatable if the candidate actually wants to win versus listening to a consultant who tells them mailers are good enough. Or that district is red already. I'm sorry, blue already. You're not going to get anything there. Let's funnel more money into more mailers. What's that? My commission? Oh, yeah, that's going up, you know, because that's how consultants seem to work. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm right, but that's what I see. All right. Regardless of what the prognosticators say, for the listeners out there and the viewers out there, is there any race you, you think in your gut or your heart or you're getting excited for that is a toss up that will be fun to watch? Oh, I, I personally will still be interested in the Garcia Smith race, even though it's not garnering the same amount of money um, as before. And, you know, like I said, I, I think you raised a very salient and, and, and accurate point that, you know, rematches um, aren't always, uh, you know, that, you know, the, this isn't going to be Rocky II, uh, if, if you will, which, you know, is probably, you know, what most people would say better than, you know, the original. I, I think we are probably going to see, you know, what we saw kind of, you know, the first time as well, but I do think that, you know, it'll, it'll be a good race to watch. And, and I, and I definitely don't think that there's any given in the situation. I think, I think uh, Garcia is going to have to fight um, for every vote that he gets, but I think, I think it will come uh, out uh, for him. I, I, hopefully, um, you know, there. Um, so I think that that'll be an interesting one um, to see. Uh, I think that, you know, it will be, uh, it'll be interesting uh, to watch the, the Kylie Jones matchup. Uh, so there's one of your R versus R contenders because of redistricting as well. Um, and so it uh, wasn't specifically on, on the list there, but I think that uh, it, you, well, I'm it, sorry, Karen, you're saying that's going to be a close race. I just kind of assumed that was Riley's to lose. Kylie. Or I'm sorry, Riley. Riley, Kylie, how are you white um, people look the same? I'm I think I think Kylie's going to take it, but I, I do think that there has been some infighting um, going on amongst the Republicans, and and I think Jones is, is at least trying to put up a fight over it. Uh, and, but I mean, the reason why is because there are so few red districts in California that when there is a red district, you see pretty much all of the Republicans coming out of the woodworks, you know, to fight for that particular seat. Oh, especially so, the well, uh, well, we are talking congressional level. I mean, the outside the the district candidates will flock in. It happened to, to my district. You know, there were there were a couple of outside candidates because it's like, and, and what cracks me up is they're lying scum from this perspective. 
the reason they give as to not running in their district. It's every, they will sit there and give you a book as thick as a dictionary on why they're running outside their district without stating the one truth is I can't win in my district. So I'm going to this red district where I have a shop. You know, I don't find that disgusting and there is no honor in these races, but if there's anything that's unhonorable and very used car salesman like, it's that. No, no, not the candidate, but the reasons it's, they give. It's definitely carpet bagging and carpet bagging is never really a desirable trait in any candidates and usually we'll turn off most of the constituents um, that are there because it's like, come on, we we know that you're not actually one of us. We know that you don't actually really care. You came in because you you were trying to, you know, take in a seat that you think you could win. So, yeah. Okay, one final question on, on the congressional side, whether it's Republican versus Republican, Democrat, top two, whatever. Uh, well, do you think abortion is right now playing a role in the primaries in terms of swaying some of these votes and, and helping some Republicans out? I think that the abortion discussion is actually probably helping Democrats more than, than Republicans right now. Uh, you know, in terms of at least how they are trying to throw the red meat at it. Um, it's really interesting because, like I say, for, for years, I actually would have thought that the more single issue of voters were pro-life voters, at least on, on the topic of abortion. But but it almost seems as though the, the Republican, or, I'm sorry, it seems as though the Democrats are actually making a play, um, and certainly with their messaging and their narrative, um, for, for single issue pro-abortion um, voters. Uh, I really wouldn't have thought that there was a massive contingency of you know, single issue pro-abortion voters. But, you know, I, I think many people, you know, and, and I think they're really trying to drive out, you know, women that, you know, want to hold on to that and that see that as, you know, their their issue and that the woman's issue of, you know, the election. I don't know that, that it holds the same weight um, that, that it did, you know, during, you know, earlier years. Uh, but but they certainly are trying to bank off of it. So I do think abortion is a factor, and I do think that, that we'll see it play, but I, I think it's being used right now much more so by Democrats, either to advance a candidate that they think that they can beat more substantially in the general, or to turn out voters that were fairly checked out and even more apathetic and giving them something to go out and vote for because the economy stunk and crime was a mess and... Ukraine and everything else that wouldn't have gotten them to, to turn out otherwise. Here's how I see that abortion battle. I agree with you 100%. It's an emotional issue, which tends to get Democrats and, and pro-abortion pro uh, people buzzing like hornets. You know, it gets them riled up, angry, full of hate, vileness, and that. But we have a long game we can play here, meaning after the primary, they're kind of tapped out. Who they have, they rile their people up to get them to go out. The people, they already know who those people are, you know, but our side, the pro-life, we've got tens of thousands of hidden votes there. Again, I'm repeating myself, but with the Latino base here, you know, and that's something that Ron Nearing had no clue on when he was talking, teaching that class because the Republican party runs from that battle. They'll tell us in our little conservative party once a month meeting, how they're going to do this, do that. But then in front of a camera, they run away from that battle. So the Republican candidates, and usually it's a long shot that, that, that we can see try this. We'll go into those districts and talk to those people one-on-one -on -one and in Spanish. And 
when I say that in Spanish as they should, but I'm a proponent of uh, English being the official language. But that said, we have a lot of Latinos here who speak too much of broken English. You start talking to them in Spanish and they're on board. I flipped voters in Vegas or Nevada rather uh, uh, to Ted Cruz because when I would knock on that door, no hablo inglés. No problema, señora. Yo estoy aquí para decirte la verdad. No problem, ma'am. I'm here to tell you the truth. And as soon yep, as yep, they yep. heard me talk Spanish, their whole demeanor changed. It was as if talking to someone that I wasn't necessarily friends with, but it, they, their comfort zone. That's out there, Republicans. You just don't want to see it, you know? And, 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 and honestly, if I wasn't so worried about baggage, about my family being destroyed, I'd consider wanting to start a career running for office because it's not that I would necessarily, not that we always get the best candidates, uh, but getting candidates that can win and, and, and follow the people's beliefs along with the party's ideology, that's the best of all three worlds. And we're just lacking with that in our party. Okay, let's go to the race everybody's going to know about. Uh, at least they're going to know one name in the race, and that's the gubernatorial race. Again, 26 candidates, if I remember correctly, four Democrats. One is the incumbent. The other three, I imagine, are Democrat in name only because the party would never let anybody run against uh, Gavin Newsom. But there are 13 Republicans. Now, let me set this up. Gavin Newsom isn't even really campaigning right now. You know, for all intents yeah. and purposes. I mean, does this show how lopsided this race is going to be? Oh, oh and he's I'm sorry. Spending, and does Newsom have any Achilles heel? Well, Legit. he's spending his money right now to try to garner national attention because most people think that he wants to make a play for the presidency at some point in time. So he's trying to, you know, say, I take on, you know, national Republicans and, you know, I'm taking on, you know, the, you know, he, he's definitely championing, uh, you know, and wants to entrench and enshrine the abortion, you know, issue and, and certainly make that, you know, a, a major focal point of, of his election. I hope, um, he does. I hope he does. Well, in, in terms of, of opponents that, that are against him, I mean, essentially, I would say that there's 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 three names that I'll talk about um, that are here. Uh, pretty certain Brian Dolly is going to be the one to advance, much like we talked about with Muser in the U.S. Senate seat. But Brian Dolly's the, the I'm sorry, endorsed. He's the endorsed Republican candidate. So that's the comparison that's being drawn there. Uh, so, you know, his his name will show up on uh, those, you know, mailers and, you know, uh, when looked up. He's not terribly well known in Southern California. Um, he's a, a state senator in uh, the, you know, current uh, legislature. And, you know, he has, you know, a, a following and a backing, um, mostly in Northern California, um, you know, where he is a state senator. And, you know, like I say, he's most likely going to advance and most likely we're going to see the, the usual or all too common, unfortunately, 40-60 split um, that's going to be there. Two other names that I think are interesting um, to at least, you know, have out there um, are Jenny Ray LaRue. Um, she actually has done decently on fundraising. She actually ran um, in the recall election, has been trying to get out there. Uh, and she has some of the grassroots support around here. I think she earned herself the, the CRA endorsement, if memory serves me correctly, and that's the California Republican Assembly, which is a grassroots organization within the Re Republican Party. It's separate from the CAGOP, but they are an organization within the party. 
So she's an up and comer is what, 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 what I'm kind of reading between the lines, but she comes, I don't want to say she comes from money or has money, but I got the perception that she can self fund better than the average person. Cause that's kind of how she got her start with the special election. I think she's actually just been pretty good at fundraising, quite honestly. I mean, by and large, all things said and done and, and considering, I mean, and by pretty good, I mean, she's not, she's not pulling in the numbers that are needed to, to want a statewide, statewide race, but she is pulling in at least significant enough numbers that keep her at least on the horizon and people know that she's there and you know she's able to send out some mailers on a very limited capacity um you know and, and kind of get her name out there a little bit is, is it one, fair to say she has a pair considering what i heard went down with the cagop convention and the reason i say that is she spoke out and most candidates are like oh no i want to protect my career i'm not going to say anything and she she went ahead and, and spoke out. If you can briefly talk about that, not too many details because most people won't know to follow. But in essence, did she stand up for something she thought was wrong? And was she right or wrong? Honestly, I wasn't at the convention. I did hear about it. I saw a couple of texts that came through. I, I think that basically um, she called out the proxy delegate. I'm sorry? The endorsement process? Well, it, it was more than just the endorsement process. It really has to do with, with proxies and delegates is, is, is how it really plays out. But, but essentially, there was a, a donation made to the CAGOP uh, by Dolly's wife that, you know, she sent a text out about because the, the question was, is whether or not the, the proxies um, ended up going to vote for his endorsement. So that, that was the story behind that. That's what they that's what they did. I'm sorry. The, the Republican Party of San Diego County did the same thing. There was a big, big housing project that I was for in the beginning, but then I quickly went against it because we're fire country and they were gonna, they wanted to add hundreds and hundreds of homes, but they didn't want to do anything to deal with the, the you're creating greater fire issues because of more homes, more people, more traffic. And then like a couple of nights or a week, a few days before the vote or, or, or something to that effect, the Republican Party endorsed the people who wanted the, the developers after we found out that you know, there was like a $50,000 donation to the party. Oh, no, 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 that had nothing to do with it. Whether it did or nothing, the timing makes the answer, yes, it did, because we'll never know. So I always err on the side of caution, the side of caution, were you bought $50,000 before the vote? Yes, you were bought. So that's how I view that. Because at the end of the day, to avoid that perception, Mrs. Daw didn't have to give the money. She could have waited till after that process, right? I, I she could have. That is a very fair statement. Yes, she could have. And that's that, all I'm then, saying. That's all I'm saying. Then the, the, the text would not have had nearly the, the teeth or the weight um, for that. Okay. Uh, the last case that, that I think um, is worth at least um, a, a mention or a discussion of is, is Michael Schellenberger. Uh, Michael Schellenberger is actually an independent candidate who's running. Uh, and he probably will not place, like I said, I, I, I've pretty convinced that it's going to be Dolly who's going to advance to the number two position. But it is interesting to see that we are getting a little more of that, that independent push um, because there actually is, like I say, a, a movement in the talk of, of trying to move away from the, the partisan designations on the statewide races uh, in, in order to hopefully get a more, you know, fair or balanced or, you know, just less divisive and partisan split so that people actually have to look at the candidates a little bit more. Okay. So Schellenberger has so some modest fundraising um, that, that was there, but probably not enough to get him the number two spot. 
You know, Karen, I want to believe you, but again, when you're facing the machine and the machine that's willing to lie on both sides uh, uh, for their own nefarious gains of their candidates, and I do believe that happens a lot uh, when we're told things, uh, and I'm not saying Karen agrees with me, it's my opinion, that I don't ever foresee that. I think Poisoner was as close as we could get, but we're going to talk about an independent in one of the, the final two races we're going to talk about, but real quick. Yes. I call him a grifter based on what I've read, what I've seen. So one name people need to avoid or watch out for or go to his campaign and ask him, why did you do this or not do this or not do that before you decide who you want? And that is uh, Major Williams. You know, can you tell us anything about him? Uh, I don't want to put you in the spot because uh, I don't know what you think of him, but that's just what I've read about him. And, and everything I've read seems My, non-argumentative. Right. What I can say is, is that to the best of my knowledge, Major Williams ended up as a write-in candidate on the recall election, uh, which was interesting because he had campaigned long enough that there was no reason that he should have been a write-in candidate, if memory serves me correctly. He's, he's um, also a former Luis Farrakhan guy, you know? And, and I'm like, ooh, you're talking to Sirius 180. Those are types of values and ideology that it takes something traumatic or, or certain things in life to impact you before you, you flip on, on that. For me, it was skin color. When they tried to lump me all in one skin color, and, and I'm like, no, Latinos are actually quite diverse versus... The, the false perception Americans think we are, you know, that. Uh, uh, but Schellenberger's independent. Uh, uh, let's go to another independent that may actually have a, a shot based on what I've been reading. But the thing with articles that are more opinion than fact is you don't know if it's the writer hoping or if there's some reality in it. And of course, I'm talking about the attorney general race. And to Californians and to everybody across the country, the attorney general race is actually a very important race you should be aware of. That is your state cop. And most people have no clue what an attorney general does at the state level, much less other responsibilities. So right now there are five candidates for attorney general. One is a Democrat, the incumbent, two Republicans, and one former Republican that's an independent, and usually I don't name these because of what I've said about independence, I don't think they garner enough support, but this independent is, uh, her name is Anne-Marie Schubert. Talk to us about that before we go to the other two Republicans. Sure. So uh, we gave the teaser before. Uh, so uh, the... Three opponents are running against Rob Bonta. Uh, we, we mentioned that Rob Bonta actually was appointed um, by, by Newsom. So he's he's not been an elected candidate to this office. He actually had previously been an elected candidate, but not to the Office of Attorney General. Uh, and he supports very liberal uh, policies uh, and has you know supported uh, DAs that are not enforcing the law as well. And so th there's a lot to pretty much hammer him on. Karen, and is so, he a defund the police type candidate? Yes, yes. Remember that, and, people. For all things, he is a defund the police, and that says it all. Right. Sorry, go ahead. So that's quite right. So the, the Sacramento DA, Anne-Marie Schubert, um, who uh, prosecuted, I think it was the, the Golden State Killer, if I'm not mistaken, um, has uh, you know started a run against uh, uh, Bonta. Uh, Anne-Marie Schubert's a, a very interesting individual. Uh, like I say, she, she's not your traditional conservative, but she is certainly, I think, your, your law and order type of candidate. Well, hold and, on, Karen. Uh, she certainly... 
when you say she's not your traditional conservative, uh, are we talking to Mark Muser that can walk both sides of the aisles but still keep the values, or is she more establishment but understands a conservative uh, ideology and how we need to have more balance? I mean, what do you mean when you say she's not a traditional conservative in that way? Right. Uh, be more lifestyle choices um, on her part uh, that are there that just won't resonate with every um, conservative uh, voter um, that, that's present. Gotcha. So, right. So the, the thing about this, though, is, is that do you want someone that's actually going to enforce the, the law? Do you want someone that's actually going to go after criminals? Do you want someone that has a history of, of prosecuting criminals? And the, the reality is, is that her, her track record for, for doing that, especially in Sacramento, which is a, a very liberal town and, you know, county, uh, you know, because it's a countywide um, a district attorney position. Um, actually, I think, you know, resonates and and shows that she does value um, the, the job of prosecution um, for what would be the, the top prosecutor of the state. You know, the attorney general is, is what they do. Um, and, and like I say, she, she's done uh, the job in, in Sacramento, you know, fairly well. She, she has come under some heat uh, because there have been some, you know, shootings and things like that um, that are there. But I think she's trying to go after the criminals to the, to the best extent that she possibly can. Right. Uh, you know, beyond that, beyond that, you know, I think that what it really comes down to is if she can make it to the general election, we now have a Democrat versus an, a no party preference voter versus an independent rather than a Democrat versus a Republican. Because in a, I'm sorry, because especially in down ballot races, the percentage just gets knocked off even further. So right. if you get a 60-40 split or, you know, a you know, 61-39 split for the gubernatorial race, the down ballot races lose about a percentage or two um, on, on each one going down. We know that independents that go against the Democrat stand a much more fighting chance. We did see that with Steve Poisner. Uh, you know, when he ran in 2018, and that was much more of a 48-52 split. Um, so there really is a little more potential for this. And because the public safety of California is what it is right now, a race like attorney general could even see that that skew and that flip going in, in Schubert's favor if, if she can go right down the middle on that. You know, That's still it, be... I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say in this instance, I don't believe in independence. But there's always that outlier, that exception. And because we're talking law and order, that transcends class. Because once those attacks in San Francisco started on those high-end shopping stores, uh, I mean, where purses is $1,000, shoes are, are 600 a pop, you know, that <laughs> entered the rich man's world. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. What I'm saying, the party got to their driveway. And seeing all that on national news, you, that affects people. So when you have a situation like that, if she can properly market and educate Sacramento on who the golden uh, uh, gate killer was, and for America, and for, for those who don't know, the golden, the golden gate killer, is it golden gate? Golden State. Golden State, I believe. Yeah. Golden Gate. Uh, he was a State. serial killer. I think it's Golden like State. The, the 80s, 70s or 80s. And, and, and through DNA evidence, they caught him. You know, which shows a dogged persistence. I think she can market that. And my point being, that can help her transcend. Oh, that's a law and order candidate right there. But she's got to get past. I mean, let's assume the Democrat the incumbents in. She's got two other Republicans. Briefly, 
are any of those two noteworthy out of those three candidates? Does she have a legit chance? So it really depends on what happens with the split. So there's, okay, the problem right now that she's facing and that her team has to be looking at and, and very sad about is the fact that no party preference voters are not turning out to vote. We already have uh, an abysmally low voter turnout that we talked about at the beginning of the, the, the show. And that's only compounded and worse um, with no party preference voters who would be the most likely to vote for her. What she needs to make this happen is that she needs disaffected Democrats. She needs Democrats that are ticked off at their party. She needs Democrats that actually do want some public safety and, and that, that are not happy to basically say, you know what, I'm not going to tow the party line on this. Bonta has failed as the attorney general, and, and they need to support her in mass. So Karen, though, but, hang, hang on. <laughs> then, no, so is she doing that? I, I think that she, I don't see a lot of her, like, ads targeted specifically to Democrats, but I would say with a pretty high degree of certainty that if her campaign team is doing what they need to be doing, they better be going after the, the soft Democrats. They better be going after the Democrats that, that have demonstrated a propensity for some law and order in the past. And I would say that they probably are. Um, I hope that they are. I, I, don't, I don't have insight into the strategy team uh, for her campaign. Uh, like I say, I know a couple of the people that, that are on it, and I, I think that they're good enough to know that that's what they would need to do to make this happen. The second thing, though, that has to happen is that the Republican vote needs to split almost evenly in order to go and ensure that there isn't a number two from most likely Hotchman. Um, early really doesn't stand the chance at the number two spot, most likely, despite what we kind of hinted at uh, early on in the, in, in the show about the, the independent expenditure pack that Bonta is running to try to push up Early's numbers so that he could run against Early rather than either Schubert or Hotchman. Hotchman is much more well-funded than Early. Hotchman did get the, the GOP endorsement as well, and we've talked about what that means on mailers and how many Republicans are going to vote for him. But I do think that the Republican Party is a little split on this one. Um, Early ran for Congress in the past. Um, he ran against Adam Schiff. So he has a little name ID. He ran for attorney general in the past as well, um, though um, lost that in that race um, to Stephen Bailey. So Early does have some name ID and he does have a grassroots following that is loyal to him um, and, and that is passionate. Um, Early earned himself the CRA endorsement. So if the, if the Republican Party splits, even if the Republican Party splits along a, maybe even a 35-65 line um, that's there, but the voter turnout being as low as it is, and if Schubert can pull pretty much all of the NPPs and a significant enough share of Democrats, and if, she, and I know she's been, you know, campaigning to some Republicans, because I have seen some of that that's there. There may be some Republicans that are thinking, I really would like to see somebody go against Bonta that has a shot, and she may pull some of those votes as well. You know, I, it's I a long shot. Yeah, but, as I would say, it's a long shot. It's still a long. But that said, what Karen is saying, everybody, is, is vote counting. One of the things you <laughs> learn in candidate school is how many votes do you need to win? And then from there, where are those votes? And that's what Karen just broke down. She's got to go find those votes out. Uh, 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 Karen said what she needed to do. I don't know if she's able to do it just because of the cost of being able to do that. But if she wants it bad enough, 
where there's a will, there's a way, because there's way the ways to pull those numbers. The problem is getting to those people. And you're right. A lot of MPP people are apathetic. And I know for a fact, a lot of people become MPP in California because they don't want to deal with the pushback with friends, family, or work if they're registered to a party come political season. I have been told that multiple times over the years. So, uh, uh, and I think that's that's where she may suffer is a lot of MPP voters uh, uh, may not care, but she may have a shot because it's crime. Crime is rampant in California. You know, uh, yeah. if this was a boxer's match, Vegas would have odds favoring the criminals every time just because it's become that easy to commit a crime and get off. Okay, so. It certainly becomes a more interesting race if she advances to the general. Let's put it that way. Are you for hoping sure. for that in a way or are you going to stick to your Republican? Actually, I, I, think, I think her advancing to the, the general gives the best shot for defeating Bonta and the best shot for defeating Bonta is good for the state and it also weakens um the the democrats stranglehold on every you know statewide seat since 2006 it also weakens the republican party's uh, uh, a guerrilla grip they have on the party right now uh you know so i mean i just thought of that as you were talking it it, 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 it they take a hit but will it hurt them i don't know but it's a crack if she if she goes ahead <laughs> you know it's a crack in their in their shield okay the final race before we call it a night ms roseberry first of all you need to tell us what a controller is and why it's important in this race, at least for Californians. Because most people hear the term controller, and and, and it, to me, it's just another fancy name for a bookkeeper. You know, you have bookkeeper, accountant, controller. You got tens of your names for somebody who crunches financial numbers. I, I, I'm being a bit facetious, you know, uh, uh, but what is a controller? I mean, you're, you're not terribly incorrect on this, but I mean, essentially, they perform the audits. Um, that that take place um, or are supposed to take place of the state budget. They actually, you know, the controller's name is the name on most of the state checks that are issued as well. Um, they, they can serve, pardon the pun, after just talking about their name on the check, but they can also serve to a small degree as a check on certain fiscal matters. And that's why this race actually does matter because, and again, another pun. So, pardon, but yes, you know, it's, it's you know, good good time for puns. But it is a reason why this particular race matters because California spends money like there's no tomorrow. Oh, um, we have this surplus that's going on, yet none of that's coming back to the people. We have a gas tax that's radically inflated, and and yet no one is looking at really the, the the books and the money, you know, they're, they're all the talk about the EDD fraud that was going on. You know, there, there's a lot of just fiscal mismanagement that is taking place in this state that has been ignored because of that misdirection that we've been talking about. And when you have a single party control system over the state, they don't, they're not accountable to anyone. I mean, technically they're accountable to the voters and, and the voters are like, well, do something about it, but they're, they're not changing who they're voting for. You know, they expect that something's going to happen and yet nothing is. And because there's like no one serving as that, that check on the control of the fiscal matters, we just see this getting worse to the extent that actually even the L.A. Times has come out and said, you know what, because every statewide seat is controlled by the Democrat Party, maybe it would be a, a decent idea if there was at least one seat, you know, that that a Republican did hold and, and maybe, you know, having it as an oversight seat and, and something that could serve as a check and that there could be some fiscal management taking place after everything that's happened right. in the past several years. 
maybe we actually should endorse um, uh, Chan, and they did actually. So, well, the, the, in a nutshell, the franchise tax board. There's no business in existence that does not know what the franchise tax board is. And my point being, he that position serves on the franchise tax board, and uh, it's a powerful seat. So, so we take a lot of these positions for granted, but he truly has the power of the pen, and he's not governor. You know, so so it's an important position. There are six candidates, people. It's an open seat. And, and I think that's one reason Republicans do have hope and Karen can attest that an open seat makes it a bit more equal uh, uh, than, than the power of the incumbent. And name ID on this seat stinks. And, and okay. it, it usually does for, for the yeah. controller, you know, because it's just, it's a minor race in the bigger picture where in the reality, it's a very important race. And uh, Chen has done a pretty good job of getting his name out there for a very long time. Who's that? Uh, the I said Chen has done a pretty good job of getting his name out there for a, a, a pretty long time. Like I say, the, the biggest, uh, you know, uh, opposition or, you know, like the, you know, drawback that he actually has is that R after his name and what that'll do. However, oh, I'm sorry, I, you were saying the name and it wasn't clicking. Yes, Lanny Yosef's Chan. Yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And, and so, like I say, I, I think though on the low voter turnout that's going on actually could serve him well in this particular race because because the voter turnout is as low as it is, there is a pretty good tendency of at least a somewhat more educated electorate likely to vote, or at least an electorate that cares enough to have actually cast their ballot. Because right now we've talked a lot about voter apathy being part of the reason why we're seeing the voter turnout so low. So voters that are voting care at least enough to kind of be aware of the issues. And so Chen actually stands a shot here. And I mean, like, it, it's almost for sure that he's going to advance to the, the general. And then it becomes a very interesting case of who he goes up against and how that plays out. But it, it'll be it'll be even more interesting, I think, in the in the November race. But there's a like I say, pretty good likelihood that, you know, we, we see him advance almost for sure. And what that means for us in, in the November general, well, you know, that, that could be uh, the possibility of a Republican seat that could be won. Uh, he was called a prodigy by the National Journal. Uh, Karen, he's Asian. We are in the era of identity politics. Let's say he advances. Can he have, uh, can he get the Asian vote? Uh, 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 I don't know the Asian demographics. I just, when I think California, though, especially here in San Diego, we have heavy Vietnamese, Filipino uh, uh, influence here, uh, uh, a lot of pockets, uh, suburbs of them. Uh, so is that something he can yeah. use to I his advantage? To the best of my knowledge, I think he's already running in, in circles that are going to aid that. So back in 2020 there was Prop 16 um, that was on the ballot. And Prop 16 was an affirmative action measure. And it basically went down um, thanks in large part um, to the Asian vote um, turning right. out um, in, in pretty much mass to, to say, no, we don't want this. And I think he's been, you know, like I say, uh, tapping into those resources into that circle and into that, you know, organization um, that's still there and that movement and, and, and machinery. And I think that that would help him um, to, to turn out um, the vote um, in, in November for him as well. You know, Karen, I have a friend who's Asian and I went back home and we were all maybe one too many beer. And my friend who's a Democrat looked at my friend who's Asian. Yeah, you just the other white meat. And I had never seen my friend who was Asian. He was, I mean, he was ready to, he was, let's put it this way. 
that guy would have been roasted me by the time my friend got through with it. Uh, uh, so sometimes, but that's what a lot of Democrats are saying about the Asian community because they will not align with them because they are not white. And that's always been my issue as a Latino. Just because you view me a certain way does not mean I agree with your ideology. And we won't get into it at all. But that whole Asian hate was such uh, 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 whoever told him to go down that road should have, should have been taken out back and shot because that was the worst advice you could have ever been given because I have Asian in my family. I know a lot of Asians. And when that campaign came out, I was like, this is going to backfire pretty quick because the numbers, perception, the, the truth and the perception, which are two different things, aligned on this one. And that's kind of what happened. Karen, uh, I want to thank you for coming on. It's it's great to have somebody who understands the ins and outs uh, of the local and national issues. And we're going to keep ha having you back as often as you can. I want to bring you back again for the, the, the post election. And because uh, we're only five months from the, from the general after next week. So it, it, fun times are coming, uh, serious times, because this determines, Karen and I, well, I'm more than 50. So I look at myself closer to death than life. So, so what's happening now is for everybody, the younger generation, you guys are the ones that are going to be affected long-term, you know? So, so never forget that, but it's also fun to watch some of these battles and we're going to get into the assembly and state Senate races next go round. And, and I want you to do some research because it's going to be Randy Vopel versus Marie Waldron. If, 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 if everything goes down on primary uh, day, and those are two, uh, uh, Republicans, and it pits the grassroots activist Carl DeMaio supporting Marie Waldron. I'm not a big Marie Waldron fan, and I'm going to be coming out hard on why with 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 with, 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 with uh, 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 articles, and I'm I'm investigating something like a reporter right now. So there's some good stuff to come, and I want your input on it to analyze it, uh, as well as all these other races. So Karen, I'm being a little bit long-winded, but thank you, thank you so much, and a little inside baseball. This is mine and Karen's second shot because just put a gun to my, I guess I shouldn't say that right now, but I was, I just, we just could not get it going until tonight. So a lot of time and effort was put into this. And I thank you again. And Karen, we hope to see you uh, soon. Any final words regarding the primaries before we let you go? I hope that everyone uh, is educated, informed and gets out to vote in it. Uh, clearly we've seen the voter turnout is pretty abysmal. Your vote really does matter in this particular race, and uh, you can actually have some influence on who advances to the general. So uh, I hope that this has been uh, helpful and informative. And William, I thank you very much for having me on. It's always a pleasure. I do look forward to it and uh, love to be able to talk uh, politics and hopefully fire some people up to uh, get out the vote. So exactly. uh, uh, on this one here. Exactly. And everybody, this is Fired Up. Don't forget to visit sportsgrumblings.com where you can find this podcast, share it, and we will see you all next time. Good night, everybody. Good night.